0: Let the church say amen. amen. If you have your Bibles or electronic devices, don't you quickly open them up to Malachi chapter two, Malachi chapter two, and we're going to look at verses one through five, Malachi two verses one through five. Once you have it, stand up. If you don't have it, go ahead and stand up. It should be up on the screen until you're able to get it on your device. Let the church say Amen. amen. Verse one. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear and if you will not take, take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you don't take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse On your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. Father God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word today. We ask that Jesus Christ would be glorified and that he would be lifted up. We pray, Father, that you would penetrate our hearts today so that we might see him. And in seeing him, we might believe on him and believing on him, we might be saved. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Won't you say amen? Amen Amen. Amen. and amen. I want to talk for the next few minutes on the subject, Conversations with God, and this is part two, Conversations with God, part two. You remember in Malachi 1 that uh, the Lord gives a word to Malachi. The prophet Malachi prophesies during the same time as the time of Nehemiah. The people have gone back to Jerusalem after being in exile they have gotten discouraged. They have gotten disappointed, and many of them are disillusioned because they thought the kingdom was coming back and their expectations were not met. And so in that discouragement, in that disappoint, to disappointment, they began to just go through the motions of worship. They began to, to worship and sacrifice to God and give to God those things That that we're not appropriate for worshiping the true and living God. Last week, you'll know that as God gives this conversation with uh, the children of Israel, he mentions to them, you said, hey, how have we loved you? And he starts off in chapter one, verse two, by saying, I have loved you. And then he says, you'll ask me, well, how have we uh, defiled your name? How have we defiled your name? And then he goes through a list of things that they were doing that did that. And then how have we defiled you? And he talked about the offerings that they would bring. Some of those offerings were sick and some of those offerings were already dead. The scripture says in chapter one that they would even bring stolen offerings to go and worship God. And so here we have in chapter two. This 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 new revelation of as he continues to give them an idea of of those things that are not appropriate with regard to worship hard conversations, hard conversations. And kind of reminds me of growing up. Growing up, I played football. Uh, I played football in high school and right before high school football, I played in middle school. Well, there was a team in Oakland called the Oakland Dynamites. And Coach Herman Papa Raven was the coach. Coach Raven coached for over 40 years. He passed away in 2009. In those 40 years, he won 27 championships. He sent uh, uh, dozens of players to the NFL, most notably Marshawn Lynch played for the Oakland Dynamites and Coach Papa Raven. Well, I remember trying out for the Oakland Dynamites when I was in the sixth grade and they had a sixth grade team, a seventh grade team and an eighth grade team. And at tryouts, Papa came and and put his finger like that. and He said, although you're in the sixth grade, you're going to play for me. And so I was a sixth grader playing with eighth graders. They were a lot bigger than I was. They were a lot faster than I was. And they were a lot stronger than I was. And I said, sir, how come I have to play with the eighth grade? And he says, because I see something in you. And so we practiced, and this man who said he saw something of me uh, was harder on me than he was on anybody else on the team. I remember one night we were practicing at Fruitville Park. It was a rainy night. It was in the fall when it got dark real fast, so we were practicing under the lights. It started raining real hard, and Coach Papa Raven would not stop practice. And it was the worst practice we had ever had. The running backs kept fumbling the ball, and he blew his whistle, and he said this. The next person that fumbles, I'm going to take off my belt, and I'm going to whoop their blank, blank, blank. And so during the practice, we rotated running backs. And so you'll have to remember, we were practicing at Fruitvale Park. It was in the nighttime. We were practicing underneath the lights. It was raining real hard. Each person that got the ball would fumble. He had gotten to his limit and he said, the next person that fumbles, I'm going to take off my belt and I'm going to spank their blank, blank, blank. Well, guess whose turn it was to get the ball? Well, I was only in the sixth grade and these seventh and eighth graders were real happy when I got the ball because they said, oh, he's getting it. Because I was a lot smaller than they were, I was a lot slower than they were, and I wasn't as strong as they were. So he blew the whistle to start the play, and the quarterback handed me the ball. And I don't remember much about that play, but I do remember this. The linebacker hit me low, and the safety hit me high, and the ball went straight up in the air. And he blew the whistle again, Coach Papa Raven, who told me at tryouts that you're going to play with the eighth grade team because I see something in you. He took off his belt and spanked me right in front of everybody. He didn't spank me on my rear end because I had on a girdle. And those of you who play football know what a girdle is. They're the pads that cover your sides and your rear end. But he tore up my legs. He didn't hit me once. He hit me but good. I was in the sixth grade playing with these older boys, and I didn't want them to see me cry, so I just held it in till after practice. How could this man that said he saw something in me, how could this man that gave me the privilege of playing with the older boys, how could this man who says, I see the potential in you, humiliate me and correct me in front of everybody on the team? Well... Men and women, I I, I believe we live in a day and age where people can't handle correction. I'll tell you what did not happen. I did not go home and tell my mama and dad so that they could storm back up to the park and give Coach Raven a piece of their mind. It never crossed my mind to quit the team. It never crossed my mind to give up. It never crossed my mind to give in or to give out. It never crossed my mind to sulk too long and to get so angry with coach that I'd never give him my best. I knew that he took his belt off and I knew that he did what he did because he wanted me to get better. And he wanted me to be better. And men and women, there's a verse in the Bible that I think that relates to us with regard to God. That as we go through this passage, this passage kind of centers around this and is found in Proverbs chapter three, verses 11 and 12. It should be up on the screen and it says, my son, do not despise the chastening or chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction for whom the Lord loves. He corrects just as a father, the the son in whom he delights. Men and women, we've got to see correction differently. We've got to see that when people tell us what we're doing wrong or they tell us about our errors or tell us about those things that need to be corrected in our lives, we have to see them as blessings and not curses. And so this idea of correction is here in Malachi too. The Lord is correcting his people. He begins the correction in chapter 1. He begins the correction by telling them, you're going to say this, how have you loved me? You're going to say this, how have we denied your name or defiled you? How have we done this? And then he begins his correction with the priests. Before we get into that, what I'd like to do is to give you another brief word on good communication. Last week, I gave you a word on starting off the communication the way God starts off the communication in chapter one, verse two, where he tells the Israelites, I love you. I have loved you. And he 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 has a, a whole history of his love uh, uh, with the Israelites. And that love is undeniable. But in addition to starting off with praise, because the conversation rarely rises above the first three minutes. And an example of that is Psalm 100, where we enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. You enter into the conversation positively. I believe that in addition to praise, there is caring. And if you enter into a difficult Situation where either you are the one giving the correction or you are the one receiving the correction. There should be a level of care. Because with a lot of people we enter into fights and and struggles because we have not won the right to be heard. Nobody's going to listen to this correction unless they know that you care. The old adage is true, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And you demonstrate that care and and express it in nonverbal ways, through facial expressions, through body language, through eye contact, without distraction. So that this individual who's giving you the correction, you are able to receive it because you know That they love you. If you know what I'm saying, say amen. Amen. And so the focus is on the actions of the individual and not the individual's person or their character. There's a difference between complaints and criticism. Men and women, I believe that God gives us the right to complain. As a matter of fact, This whole prophecy is a prophecy of God complaining about the actions or inactions of his people. Let the church say amen. Amen. Men, uh, tighten your buckle because it is all right for your wife to complain. If the complaint focuses on actions, it's not okay for them to criticize your person. What do I mean by that? Let's just say in your marriage, your husband is to take out the garbage on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And he does not take out the garbage. The garbage man comes through at 7.30 a.m. and the garbage can is not out there. A criticism would be, honey, you are lazy. You're not taking out the garbage. You're lazy. Well, what you have done is attacked his person and his character. What's different than this criticism is a complaint. Honey, I got a complaint. It really frustrates me when you don't take out the garbage. The focus is on taking out the garbage. The focus is on his inaction, his lack of doing what he is supposed to do and fulfilling his responsibility. You haven't called him a name, you haven't attacked his person, you haven't attacked his character, you have attacked the action. And why am I saying this? Because in chapter two, you can tell that God is complaining. You can tell that he is complaining and the focus is not on the character of the children of Israel because in chapter 1 verse 2 he says, I have loved you. I love you. But my motive for my complaint is I want you to be better because I know you are better. You have a high calling. If you understand what I'm saying, say amen. Many of us have gotten into arguments, and we've gotten into disagreements, and we've got into those hard discussions because you've had to talk about some hard issues, and you've done two things. Number one, you've jumped on it right away, and you hadn't started out positive. And any discussion like that, the first three minutes determines how the rest of the conversation will go. And the other is, the body language is negative. The facial expression is negative. The way you, you, you gesture is negative. And you can tell when it, when the individual is not giving you eye contact back, they're like, well he doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. He just wants to get me told. She just wants to get me told. The person, as God models for us, the person is more important than the issue. The person. And so this passage is all about covenant. God has a problem with His people because of covenant. And these are the verses that you see over and over and over again about covenant. Chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. Chapter 2, verse 5, my covenant was with him, one of life and peace. Chapter 2, verse 8, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi. Chapter 2, verse 10, why do you deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? And then chapter 2, verse 14, because the Lord has been witness between you and your wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your commandment and your wife by covenant. Let everybody in the house say covenant And so for the rest of my my message, I'm going to talk about God complaining about us not fulfilling his uh, his covenant with us. There are three areas in chapter two, verses one through nine. He makes a covenant with Levi in chapter two, verses 10 through 12. He makes a covenant with Israel. In chapter, thir- chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, he makes this covenant and gives a word about the covenant of marriage. This whole idea of covenant, he's complaining to his people, and I know that his people were discouraged. His people were disappointed. They thought that the kingdom would come in. They're back in Jerusalem. The temple is being built. The walls surrounding the temple are being built. But but we want this new era to usher in, and, and we're discouraged and men and women, we could be discouraged as well. We've had to live through the pandemic. We've had to live through inflation. We'd have to live through uh, being sequestered and had to live through being socially distanced. We'd have to live through masks. And everything has changed. And yet God says, I'm still God. I'm still God. And you got to buckle up. Because the next person that fumbles, God says, I'm going to take off my belt. And I'm going to take care of you, not because cause I want to destroy you, but because I know you're better. You're better. Yeah. And notice what he says, point number one. The covenant with Levi. It is this covenant that he makes. As, 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 as we are His people and we're to have the ministry of a priest. The Levites were the tribe who were priests. The Levites were the tribe that was sprinkled about amongst all the other tribes so that all the other tribes could have priests that were there that would make offerings and, and feasts and would celebrate what God is doing in their lives. And you get the idea that this this covenant that he makes with them is one of ministry. And you get the idea that the covenant is twofold. That this pre- these priests are to know God and to make him known. They're to know God and to make him known. You get the idea in the, in the verses. If you were to look at verse 5, it says, He, Levi, feared me and was reverent before me. This covenant, Levi ha- had this reverence for God. And you look at verse 6, it says that this knowing of God's word, the law of truth, was in Levi's mouth. And then in verse 6, it says, he, Levi, walked with me in peace and equity. And then in verse 7, it says that that he should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth uh, because his mouth would be in trouble instead of a blessing to the world. You get the idea. That there is reverence, there is knowing God's word, there is this godly character that the, the Levites should have. And there is this promoting of God's word to the nations. That, that, that the people and the priests of Malachi's day were so far away from that. That chapter 2 says, these blessings and sacrifices that you bring to me, I'm going to turn them into curses. These animals where the focus when they're sacrificed is the blood on one end, these animals come and they're full of refuse on the back end. And what I've commanded you to do in my law is to take the refuse once you sacrifice these animals and take it outside the gate and burn it. What I'm going to do, because your heart isn't right, what I'm going to do because you're going through the motions, instead of recognizing the blood, I'm going to take the refuse and I'm going to wipe it all over your faces. And then you're going to have to go outside the gate. See, he is so upset with the priests of Malachi's day not fulfilling the high calling that he has called them. That he says, you can go through the motions if you want to. You can think you're all right with me if you want to. You can have this religious veneer if you want to. But I know where your heart is. And I will take these blessings, these sacrifices, that sacrifices that you think that I will accept, and I'll make them curses. And men and women, we need to be careful. We need to be careful about going through the motions because he's given us a high calling. He says that this priestly covenant that I've made with Levi is for Levites. To know me. And to make me known. Look at your Bibles real quick. And it should be up on the screen. Not only is, are there these priests in the Old Testament... But in first Peter, chapter two, verse nine, it says, but you as believers are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, uh, uh, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This verse gives us the concept of the priesthood of all believers. Follow me now. Some of you hear passages like I just mentioned in Malachi, where God is upset with the priests of the Old Testament. And you feel okay because you say, well, I don't have REV in front of my name. I'm not a pastor. I don't have M-I-N in front of my name. I'm not a minister. Well, newsflash. The scripture says that you are a priest as well. That God has called us to be a chosen generation and a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a priest before God. Now, if you are not fulfilling your responsibility, it could be that you fulfill what this is talking about in Malachi. That you're the one that he's talking about. You're going through the motions. You're thinking you're okay. Just leave it to the professionals. It is your job to pray for folk. It is your job to share the word with folk. It is your job to tell people about Jesus. It is your job to intercede. It is your job. If you don't have any other committed Christians in your family, then you the one. You're bemoaning the fact that you don't have any Christians on your job. You the one. You the one. It could be that you don't have any Christians around you. You don't have any Christian friends. You're the one. You see, our job as priests is to know God and to make him known. If you understand what I'm saying, say amen. Amen. Point number two, not only is he upset about his covenant uh, with Levi, he's also upset about his covenant with Israel. Verses 10 through 12. How have we not all one father? Has not God created us? Why do you deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of foreign gods. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. He says this, I got a problem with you, Israel, because I've made a commitment to you and a covenant with you. You're supposed to be married to me, but you're marrying foreign gods. What he's saying is this, you believers in God, you believers in Jesus Christ, you believers who say you are God's people, you're in love with everything but God. Most of us are in love with power. We're in love with control. We're in love with resources. Some of us are in love with gadgets. Some of us are in love with, with pleasure. Some of us are in love with everything but God. We're in love with what this world has to offer Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. God says you're in love with all of that. You're in love with goodies, girls, and greed. You're in love with pleasure and power and and promiscuity. You're in love with those things that are not God. And God says, I'm a jealous God. I'm married to you. And yet you're going on with, with foreign gods. The King Solomon had that same problem, and he had over a thousand concubines, and his heart went far away from God. We're supposed to be married to God, and yet we're playing the harlot. There's a whole book in the Old Testament, Hosea, about a a, a woman who was married to Hosea that has prostituted herself with others. Men and women we got to check our affections. we got to ask yourself, who do you love? you got to ask yourself, what am I giving time to? And the issue becomes, we need to worship God with our whole heart. Not half a heart. Well, how do you do that, Pastor Mike? I'll give you three ways. There are a whole bunch more. But I believe we can love God and demonstrate that we love God through our prayer life. How often do you pray? One person said you can tell how, how popular a church is by their attendance on Sunday morning. You can tell how popular a preacher is by church attendance on Sunday night. But you can always tell how popular Jesus is by the attendance at prayer meeting. Men and women, we got to pray. We demonstrate that we love God through our prayer life, but not only that, you demonstrate that you love God through your praise life. When nobody has to force you to praise, nobody has to force you to sing, nobody has to force you to lift up holy hands, nobody has to, nobody has to force you to, to get exci- excited Excuse me, about God. Nobody has to light a fire on you because you brought your own. Men and women, through our prayer life, through our praise life, and and, and the last thing, it's probably the foundation. You know and you demonstrate your love for God through making Him your priority. Well, Pastor Mike, how do you do that? Whenever there is a decision to be made between something else and God, you choose God. It's a priority, it's what you do first. It is is not first amongst a, a list of things. It is number one that gives definition to everything on your list. So that God is always number one in my life because I always consider him in everything that I'm about in my life. Many women, he had a problem because they were... They, they, they were were, were defying and, and denying, defiling this covenant that he made with the priests, the Levites. He was upset and complaining because of the covenant that he made with Israel. He says, I am married to you. I'm a jealous God. I don't want you to wander off and your, your heart have other affections. But point number three, look down at verses 13 through 17. He's talking about the covenant of marriage, the covenant of marriage, marriage of promise. Why is he so upset about this? Verse 13 says, and this is the second thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason, Lord? Lord. How come you're not receiving our offering? We're crying at the altar. Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did He not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says, I hate divorce. Well, what's the the background here? The background is that the children of Israel came back. The children of Israel came back. They got bored. They, 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 They... Worshiping God became so familiar that it lost its meaning. And they start drifting further and further and further away from God. And the men of Israel start marrying women who believed in foreign gods. Now get this, God is not talking about interracial marriage because of race. So that has zero to do with it. God is talking about believers purposefully marrying unbelievers who they know don't believe in God. He's talking about that. Who have no, no thought of, of, well, maybe I'll embrace Jehovah as well. No, they believe in their God, you believe in your God, and listen, if that happens, you are going to wander. If you don't decide to outright say you don't believe in God anymore, you will not have the fire that you once had. And men and women, we need to be careful. God is more concerned about you marrying someone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ the way you do. He's more concerned about that than he ever is about you marrying somebody of another race. That has zero to do with it. And there is no prohibition about that. But there is prohibition about you being unequally yoked. And so the children of Israel, the men, had gotten so low that they had married the, uh, the, the other Israelite women and they would divorce them so that they could marry somebody of a foreign god. it would be as if I, I got a divorce so that I could marry somebody else who was saved. And divorcing out of no reason whatsoever. God says... I hate divorce. Well, why does he hate divorce? He hates divorce because of what it does to his people. Notice this. And we as the church have translated this wrong. We have seen that verse in verse 17 that says God hates divorce. And we've translated it to say that God hates divorced people. It does not say God hates divorced people. He's complaining about The prevalence of divorce. He loves his people. And he knows you can do better. Because you made a covenant. Now let me say this. That this covenant is a serious, solemn, sacred agreement. Where God is at the center. It mirrors God's image. God is the three in one. And when you make a covenant with an individual or, or a group, you're making a covenant. It is you, it is them, and God is at the center. It's stronger than a contract. It's more powerful than just a spoken agreement. It is a covenant between you, someone else, and God. This threefold strand is not easily broken. It is a covenant made between you and God. And if you were to practice The law of first occurrence. We see this covenant in Genesis 15 where God makes a covenant with Abram. In uh, uh, Genesis 15, 6, it says, and Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And you go on in the chapter and God puts Abram in a trance. And he sees in this trance That there are these animals that are sacrificed. They're they're cut in two. One half of the animal is on one side and one half of the animal is on this side. And it's about three different animals that go up. And all of a sudden in this trance, Abram sees this burning pot going through in between the slain animals. And at the end of it, in, in verse 17, I believe it is, the word of God says, and God made a covenant with Abram there. And he talks about how his descendants will outnumber the, 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 the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. Men and women, it's a picture. Because this this covenant that was made, these animals were sacrificed and they were put on either side almost as if there was an isle that was made. And in this aisle that was made, some of you have been to Catholic churches where you've seen this burning, smoking pot that symbolizes the presence of God. And what God is saying is, antiquity says... That if you were to make a covenant, you would walk arm in arm with, with whoever you were making the covenant with. If you were the head of a nation and you were making a covenant with another nation, that you would not fight. You would walk arm in arm. And at the end of the aisle, you would look back at the slain animals and you would declare, May we be like these animals if we ever break covenant. Right. Yeah. And so, the reason why God hates divorce Is because you've made a covenant with your spouse. And in the spiritual realm, whether it was your fault or the other person's fault, you feel like one of those animals that was slain. The divorced person feels like they've been cut in two. The divorced person feels like they've been sacrificed. The the divorced person is is aching and wounded on the inside. The, The divorced person is suffering. Because that covenant has been broken. And what God says is I've made a covenant with Levi. I've called you to be priests. Don't break my covenant. Because if you break my covenant, you're not getting away with anything. You will experience it, the consequences of breaking the covenant. I've made a covenant with Israel. That Israel is to love me. That Israel is to be my spouse. That just like Ephesians 5 says, the mystery is great about marriage, these roles. But I'm talking about Jesus Christ and His church. We're married to Him. We're His spouse. He's not looking for a date. God is looking for a mate. God wants us to be in a loving relationship with Him. And so He says He hates divorce. Well, you may say, well, Pastor Mike... Here I am. I've listened to you preach and you've said that I'm a priest like Levi. And, and, And so I'm not knowing God the way I ought to know God and I'm not making him known the way I need to make him known. And then then you talked about Israel. I, I can't say if I was to be honest with you, I can't say that I'm loving it with a whole heart. It's not full like it used to be. I, I just feel like I'm backslidden. And Lord and and, and and you keep preaching about how I ought to do better. And and, and that and, and I want to do better. And now you've gotten to marriage, and even though I'm not married, if some of us are single, or if we are married, we can't say we're living up to our responsibility toward our spouse. We can do better. Well, I take you back to that first covenant where these animals are sacrificed. What I didn't tell you before is that it was a bloody covenant. It was a bloody covenant. And Abram stood back and watched as God, as seen in this smoking pot, would go down the aisle. And after he gets to the end of it, the Lord is the one that declares, I have made a covenant with you, Abram. And the reason why God does not allow Abram to go and to pass between the slain animals is because that covenant isn't based on Abram living up to it. That covenant isn't based on Abram's performance. That covenant isn't based on what Abram can do. That covenant isn't based on Abram's obedience. That covenant isn't based on his efforts. That covenant is based on the character and the person of God. And God says, even though you don't live up to being a priest, I got you. I'm with you. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Even though you don't live up to that covenant of, of, of Israel where you've loved me with a whole heart, Don't matter about your love for me. You just know I love you. And I'm never going to let you go. Just like in Hosea, I'm going to come find you on the block. I'm going to come get you. I'm going to come love you. I'm going to come bring you back home. And that is what the backslidden person needs. They need God to come and reclaim them. They need God to say, I love you. They need God to say, I got you. They need God to say, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Come on home. Because it's His kindness that brings about repentance. And men and women, we are married to God and God says, I ain't going to be the one to leave. Mm -mm. You can try to leave if you want to. You can try and go away if you want to. But make no mistake, I'm coming for you because I love you and I know you're better. Don't you despise me complaining about you because my complaint is to make you better. And so I finished out my season with Herman Papa Raven, with Oakland Dynamites. My seventh grade year, I got a a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger and a little bit faster. And I started at quarterback that year, and, and we won our area in Northern California. We went down to Orange County, California, L.A. area to play in the Orange Bowl. In my eighth grade year, I got a little bit bigger, I got a little bit faster, and I got a little bit stronger. And we won the Bay Area Bowl again and then went to Fresno to play in the Raisin Bowl. I went to play high school football. I went in my ninth grade year. We won our conference that year. I got moved up to varsity in the tenth grade. We had a guy who was about six foot two, six foot three, blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Colleges all over California were looking at him. He got hurt the first game of the season and was out the rest of the season. I was his backup. Our next game, we played Skyline High School in Oakland. Skyline was one of the best uh, football teams at the best sports programs in our area. We went all the way up to the top of of the hills in Oakland to play Skyline High. I started that game when my knees were trembling. I took our team down the field, got to about the 10-yard line, and I remember hitting Teddy Bell right across the scene for my first touchdown as a varsity player. We played Skyline to the very end of the game and we lost by three points. I remember getting on the bus and one of my Oakland Dynamites teammates comes running up to the bus and says, Mike Jones, Mike Jones. I said, Yeah, we're getting ready to leave. What do you want? He said, Papa was in the stands. He told me to tell you that he's proud of you and he loves you. You see, Herman Raven took his belt off years ago. Herman Raymond took his belt off and spanked myself uh, when it was raining because I was the next person to fumble. I knew that he was spanking me because he wanted me to be better. I knew he was spanking me because he saw something in me. I knew that everything he deposited in me, my 6th grade year, my 7th grade year, and my 8th grade year, prepared me for my 10th grade year. I knew that he saw all of the potential in me, that I was going to be something. Some of y'all need to hear that today. Because you don't think you're nothing in the Christian life. You don't read your Bible the way you should. You don't pray the way you should. You don't serve the way you should. You don't give the way you should. You don't have the right attitude. You don't have the right perspective. But God sees something in you. God sees potential in you. God's going to make you stronger, He's going to make you faster, and He's going to make you grow a little bit taller. I'm just here to tell you, don't you give up. What you need to decide to do is grow up. Men and women, we can do this thing. We're to receive God's complaints because our Heavenly Father is the one who wants to correct us and discipline us and make us better. And we can be better. We can be better. And men and women, parenthetically, if you don't know Jesus Christ, knowing Jesus Christ makes you better. He wants you to live the best life you can possibly live. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I came that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word today. Oh, Father, we thank you for the covenant that you've made with us. That covenant made in blood. That covenant that you made with us on the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ that says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That covenant that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. That covenant that says Christ died once and for all for sin. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Father, help us to love you with our whole hearts. Help us to know you and make you known. And, Father, help us to live up to the commitments that we've made in our marriages. Because they mirror your image. We pray this in Jesus' name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen. 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 And amen. How about you stand? And we can be dismissed. Thank you for joining us today, and we pray that you've been blessed. For more information about our church, we invite you to either visit our website at harvestzpc.com or call us at 205-853-5033. Until next time, be blessed.